Uh, good afternoon. I'm joined today uh, by, by Lily Tang Williams. Uh, Lily has a very unique insight into living under tyranny because she grew up under Mao and she went to America and is now raising concerns and warnings about what's happening to America and to the West. Um, and uh, is doing so publicly and is, and is standing for Congress. A brave thing to do. Yes. Uh, Lily, welcome to Edinburgh. Well, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. This is my first time actually to be in Scotland. And, uh, and the first time here with somebody, you know, from here to interview me, that's just great. It's like, oh, actually, it is a small world, right? <laughs> I never dreamed I would be doing this with you here. <laughs> well, you were, uh, you came very warmly recommended by, um, uh, by uh, uh, James Lindsay, who we've interviewed in the column and who is working in the in a similar area to you, in, in raising awareness about uh, the effects of um, of cultural Marxism and the, and the, the, the woke agenda and what it's doing to the culture in, in the West. But before we get to those areas, um, we, we are, uh, in the UK column, we're very interested in all matters related to China, partly because of our ignorance. We don't know enough, and we realise we don't know enough. And partly because of the amount of change uh, that, that China's undergone, and partly because of the amount of change that the West has undergone at the same time. And we're trying to form an understanding of that. And I was particularly keen to talk to you because you grew up under Mao, so you've experienced... Uh, what Maoism is in practice. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little about your early life in China? Well, that I always uh, call myself um, as a survivor of Mao's Cultural Revolution. I was uh, two years old to 12 years old, so 10 years under his uh, regime and during his uh, Cultural Revolution. Of course, I had no idea why, what it was about. I was born into an illiterate worker's family and uh, born into communist regime and uh, had a very, very um, primitive, um, you know, like life under poverty. I mean, it's like a poverty that people probably in the West could not even imagine. Give you an example, eight families uh, who shared one worker's row house with one bathroom, like a big hole on the ground, cut it in half, like a, with just divider in the middle, one for eight families, all women, and one for all, you know, eight families, you know, males. You know, that's like a, you could talk to each other because down there was like open air. <laughs> and, and uh, it, it was uh, um, very primitive and very stinky, and uh, we um, shared the one water faucet by eight families also. So you had to go stand in line to get your water. If you run out of water, you're out of luck because you cannot cook and clean, right? So my dad had to build a concrete um, container to 
store water in his outdoor kind of very primitive kitchen where we could do a stir fry, you know. And we were very poor. Now we had the food rationing coupons, you know, government gift to you based on your family size, your um, status inside of a communist party and factory, you know. So my mom and dad did not have much food rationing coupons, so we were all very hungry. But we had no idea what the, um, the world was like. But we were told we should be thankful that uh, we had uh, food to eat, we're not starving to death because the Taiwanese people were hungry and uh, other people in the world were hungry and, and we should be grateful and we should liberate Taiwan someday. That's what we're told. It's uh, propaganda every day, especially under Mao's Cultural Revolution. And near my mom dad's uh, apartment, there was a big loudspeaker um, near us because back to us was my actually junior high school campus. So loudspeaker come on 6.30 in the morning, still dark in the winter, like time to wake up, time to go to work, time to go to school. Long live Chiang Mai Mao, long live Communist Party. You know, they played this very loud revolutionary song. It's really, if you watch, I never watched a movie like that, right? But when you watch lots of movies, kind of like a concentration camps, like something in your face, by your ears all the time. And then everybody get going, go to work and stuff. And, and I, I did not know what to think. That was just way of our life. I had no idea and, and I just wanted to go to school. I just wanted to have some candies. I wanted to have a Chinese New Year when I had, when I had good food. And once a year, I get one new piece of clothes. After 12 months waiting, to get a new piece of clothes and some red pocket money according to Chinese traditional culture. So you could use that money to buy candy, buy school supplies. And, and uh, so that was my childhood memory, happiness. It's Chinese New Year. And, uh, and, and uh, so, so that uh, people who don't understand, it's like uh, they think of communism, you know, sounds wonderful, it's utopian, everybody shares and take whatever they want. And, and the Marxism, you know, we, we had actually Karl Marx, Lenin, Engels, and Stalin portraits with Mao's big poster portrait on the walls everywhere in our schools too. So that's, that's how I grew up, the environment I knew. <laughs> I remember uh, one of the, um, a, a dissident who, who escaped from North Korea and, and, and braved all the risks and the risk of getting shot and, he got across the border and he was being interviewed and said, well, what made you take that risk? And he said, well, it was their own propaganda because uh, there was a strike in South Korea and they showed us the union leader uh, being interviewed to say, look, the, the workers are unhappy in South Korea. Right? And, and the, the, the union leader had a ballpoint pen mm -hmm. in his pocket. And we couldn't believe the wealth that he would have a ballpoint pen. We couldn't imagine having a pen like that. And they were still striking, right? <laughs> so I said, if that's what it's like, it is. so because, because of the obvious mm -hmm. um, material benefits, um, I, that, that, that prompted this man to, to take all the risks to, to escape. Yeah. What, if any, um, experience when you were in China did you did you have or did you see or did you witness 
of anybody dissenting from the official... Well, that uh, the environment was very, very unpolitical, almost like a no place for you to hide out. I remember I was not allowed to ask questions. I saw my neighbors, sometimes they would be whispering each other, talk about some news about the country, and then they all were whispering to each other. And, as, and my family is too. As soon as I ask question as a child, oh, what are you talking about? They say, shh, quiet. And uh, I remember we had to wear Chiang Mai Mao's, Mao Zedong's buttons. And uh, if, uh, if you wear his button wrong, then you will be criticized. And, uh, and also, as a student, I had to write the student diaries for the, for the government school and to confess my thought. You confess. That means in your diary, so-called red diary, you confess to Chiang Mai Mao. He literally become like godlike figure um, because all religions were demonized, banned. And uh, so the only religion feel like at that time was communism and Mao was like our god. So you confess to say, I'm sorry, today I thought about something so incorrectly and uh, I was wrong and you are urged to tell your teacher in your diary maybe something your parents, your family said or your neighbors said, you saw something. So everybody is turned to a state, basically an agent to spy on everybody. and. I learned uh, some lessons though. When I was seven years old, uh, when I was uh, in elementary school, I wanted to join Mao's grassroots organization called the Young Pioneers, right? So, so I could wear a red scarf. Only red class family of children can wear this red scarf. And uh, my parents were dirt poor, so were red, and I could be the first one joining the group. But I was... Uh, hold back by my teacher because my girlfriend told on me to say, Lily told me she would be the first one to join the Young Pioneer. She was bragging about herself. She was, so my teacher criticized me to say, we're not going to let you join because you were full of confidence. So be confident was my flaw as an individual child because I was making 100% all my grades. I was red and I was popular, happy, social, you know, kind of like a, a good student. And uh, I was totally brainwashed and I wanted to join, you know, that. But my teacher said, no, you, we're going to hold you back just because you were different. You, you were not it's, like... It's a, it's a tall poppy syndrome. It's a collective society. You cannot be different than other students. And you gotta act and behave like everybody else. And the Chinese do have a famous saying, the first bird flies out of forest, gets shot first. Or Western United States, they say, hey, if, if you have the nail sticking out, you could get a hammer down, right? So they hammered me down, say, we're not going to let you join. So I learned a lesson at the age of seven. It's like, uh, I better not trust my girlfriend either. I better not to brag about myself, anything. I just keep quiet because I really want to be successful and you know, wear that red scarf. So I learned, don't say anything truthful in my diary either 
because that's not private. So I keep all my private ideas and thoughts to myself, and I move up. I become a you know young pioneer. I become later red guard and and uh, become class monitor or student leader. And I had a very good memory as a child. I was born with good memory, so my grades were good. So I was a three married student. You know what is a three married students under mouse? Like a China school system is a academically achieving, politically, morally correct, and uh, physically fit. It's called three merits. You had to be meet all the demands and criteria for those three merits. Then you will be awarded. And all that will go to your student file, a private secret student file records. Keep all your data in there. Your parents don't know anything about that uh, private student file. And I was not allowed to see it either, so it's secret. So because, you know, kids belong to the state, absolutely. Parents had no rights. So, so I still have that file in China today because that file from student file later become a personnel file. It goes to your police station in your local community. So I moved up, I grew up, everything was swell. I was doing well except the poor, hungry. You know, we had to, I think, live on food rationing. And my uncle told me how to trap uh, a rat in my grandma's courthouse, you know, courtyard to munch on some meat and bones, suck on the bones, because our tummy was groaning. And, uh, but I still thought, hey, you know, our life wasn't too bad because we should be grateful. That's how I was indoctrinated to believe until Mao died. So first time in my life, I asked a question, but I even knew I shouldn't ask the question publicly because I learned my lesson at seven. I asked a question in my own head. How did he die? Because we're chanting, long liver chant my mouth, 10,000 years, another 10,000 years, double 10,000 years. It's like, a, I never challenged that. He should live forever. Then he died. I think I asked myself quietly, how did he die? Who lied to me? <laughs> That's the first time. It's like, I start questioning. I start to look for truths and options. Okay. So, okay. Um so from, from that initial question to leaving for the United States, that, that seems a huge, a huge uh, a gulf to bridge. How, how did you go about that process of, of questioning more and, and developing a, an ambition that went outside of China? Um, and then how did you actually physically achieve it? Yeah, that's a natural question for you to ask. And once I... Uh, I lost a face, I become depressed, totally lost child, didn't know what to believe until the Communist Party later came out to say Mao was a human being, he made a mistake. And the 10 years Cultural Revolution was a mistake because China's economy was about, was collapsing, people were hungry, schools were shut down during his Cultural Revolution. Young people were weaponized at the guards to do political struggle sessions, to burn, to loot, and to destruct Chinese culture. Called a fool, you know, old, everything related to four olds. 
ideas, culture, habits, customs should be destroyed. That's what Mao wanted them to do. Mao achieved his party supreme leader status through his cultural revolution, then he got rid of those young people, sent them to countryside. Then I got chance. My uncles went to countryside for 10 years. I got, I'm a lot younger than my uncle generation, so I get to go back to school. When school reopened, I was in middle school. At the age of 12, I was lost, but then the um, university college system was reinstated. So I had a new dream, a new goal. Oh, I can now study really hard to go to college. Maybe I can find the truth there. What happened? Who lied to me? <laughs> I still have that question, who, what happened, right? I wanted, so something new to pump me to study really hard, work really hard. And uh, um, so from 14 to 17, actually, I got my university college enrollment notice on my birthday of 17 to go to a law school, which is bachelor degree in Shanghai. So first time I was able to leave my mom, dad, a worker's family to go to Shanghai to study law and hopefully better paying state jobs. And, but f for me, I just wanted to learn. I, I, have, I was very inquisitive, you know. And uh, my parents always encouraged me to get a good education so I could have a better paying job and get a promotion. Like my mom, dad were just poor, remain poor for the rest of her life. They were at the food, you know, bottom of the food chain as workers. So see, that's where people don't understand when they, it's like a, not true when they say communism, socialism country, socialist country owned by workers and everybody share stuff, workers rule. No, you don't rule at all. <laughs> You were at the bottom of the food chain. You had the very limited uh, supplies and even the food and clothing, everything, because your position was kind of low, you know. It, it's just the masses were at the bottom and the ruling class, you know, you know, on, on the top, you know, whoever has power. So by the time I went to college from 17 to 21, those four years, you know, changed my life. And I, I, I was lost again in college. When I realized, they told me law is not for justice. Law is to is the tool for the Communist Party to rule over the masses, the people. I said, "Well, I'm studying law then, because I wanted to change China to build a rule of law society. Now I'm here studying law, but I'm just a tool. The law is a tool. So I become a rebellious teenager. I skipped classes. I slept in, and I went to dancing parties and. And I, I'm not supposed to try and even smoke cigarette. I tried, I did not like it. But, um, but I went to see also foreign, um, foreigners who were on our campus and met, meet them at dancing parties because, uh, you know, I thought, hey, maybe I can get some information from them, what the world is like outside of China. And my English was so bad, I could not understand much. But I met this American student and he told me to and you know, and go to visit him. He has something to show me from America. He showed me the pocket constitution, the Declaration of Independence. My English was very poor, but he said, Lily, this is our founding father's word guaranteed in our founding documents. All men are created equal. I had to learn what that is about. What do you mean? You know, it doesn't matter your skin color, your gender, you are Chinese, whatever. We all are created by our creator, God. Instead of government, 
who, who can limit your rights or take your rights away completely. And I'm an individual, I'm unique in the God's eyes. I never heard of those concepts, individual rights and liberty. It's like a wow, my light bulb came on. It never turned off. That's the moment I started thinking about America as a country. Someday, if I had to leave China, I would choose to go to America. Not Europe, because uh, I know still different rights, like kings and queens. And, and uh, of course, I did not know true history of lots of things, because we were taught the Chinese Communist Party version of Chinese history in the world history. And of course, the English and French, I mean, Americans all were imperialists, and you know, we were supposed to hate them. Capitalists were exploring workers, and uh, you know, uh, there's a people's enemies. So all that, I, I went through all that. But once I heard something so different from uh, actually a guy who is from America, I say, oh, this is the country I should go to someday. I will have a guaranteed right. And I got pictures from my friends already left China for American universities. And the pictures just look beautiful, like rural, lots of open space. And, and he was so happy. And I wanted to be happy because once I realized, you know, I cannot be happy and free in China. I got to plan my escape. I become a faculty member after graduation in, in the same law school because they were desperate in need of teachers. You, um, colleges were shut down, law schools shut down for years. They needed lawyers and judges as China rebuilt the economy, the society, after Mao's Cultural Revolution, so they needed people. So I was one of the five graduates from 60 students in their law class, first graduation class, to stay in the same law school to teach part-time as a faculty member of uh, their law school, at the same time to manage a little law firm on campus to provide uh, business consulting to some uh, you know, um, international and big companies and Chinese companies that who want to do international business. Even though we did not have lots of like international property laws, we did not have lots of international, you know, laws and international commerce law yet. But I thought oh, that sounds fascinating because uh, I always wanted to, you know, um, get into business and have this entrepreneur spirit. So I stay as a um, school faculty member. But then I had to plan my escape once I realized I, I could not do much in China. I was 21 to 23 and a half um, in Shanghai until the day actually I left um, for United States. It was like two months before my 24th birthday. Was it difficult to physically leave the country? Physically and mentally and uh, they own you. So in order for me to leave, I had to change my strategies to get permission from my Communist Party boss to say, I allow you to quit your job as a faculty member to go apply for private passport. I, I managed to um, get the acceptance from the University of Texas at Austin for master's degree. But I needed my Communist Party boss at the law school to give me permission to quit my job. And uh, I wasn't doing everything politically correct. 
until I realized that I was like, shoot, how I'm going to get permission to leave? I better change my strategy, right? So I, I always call myself a little bit a straight rat. I need to be straight smart. Now I go to political study class and I say, Kumbai Yang, yes, I support the party. Party is right, you are right. I had to actively participate in a political meetings and you know, like uh, those kind of study sessions in order to convince my boss and I can be trusted to leave, to quit my job. And But he still said, you need to sign agreement. The agreement is that I promise to go back to China after I spend my own time and money to get my master's degree, or I will have two consequences. Number one, kick you outside the Communist Party. Every law school faculty member have to join the party in order, because it's a tool, it's party's tool to govern. So you, they will question your loyalty if you don't join the party. I didn't care about that. Okay, you know, kick me out. And the number two is very tough, is they will send my personnel file as a legal resident of Shanghai to go back to Chengdu, where I was born, which is a Sichuan province, capital city, Chengdu, which is not as advanced and open as Shanghai International Commerce Center. Uh, I hesitated a little bit to say, well, that means I can never go back to Shanghai to live there as legal resident. I have to go back to Chengdu, but I had to sign it. I signed it. I said, uh, okay, I, I guess this is my last chance to get out of China. I, my escape, I will never go back. I will figure out a way. So I signed it. And so I went to apply for my passport seven times, seven times, every time. They threw paper at my face. They lectured me. Why do you want to go to America? Don't you love your country anymore? And America is an imperialist country, capitalist country, you know, they're blood suckers and all that stuff. That was, of course, uh, you know, eight in the, still in the 80s, and, but, uh, but they were schoolized you, but you were allowed still to leave. So seven times I got my passport from the Shanghai police station, went to get my visa, three trips to get my U.S. visa. And when I was so happy when I got my visa stepped and came out of the consulate, I literally had the people shake my hands, hug me, touch my hair to get my good luck. Because lots of students wanted to come to leave China to study, to get in my American visa. It's like, a, wow, you're so lucky. Can we get some of your luck? So they were literally touch my hair and shake my hands. And they said, your one foot is already in the US. And I, I feel so relieved. Years later in the United States, I was still dreaming about, I was stuck in China. I could not leave. I, I look at the, the hole on the ground in my nightmare, a Pacific Ocean, and uh, make myself uh, a little mermaid and swim across. And my husband um, still said, you're still struggling with that. You're stuck, you're stuck. And, and, I, and once in a while I would say, I, I woke up last night earlier because uh, I missed the boat. <laughs> it's like I'm still dreaming. I missed the boat. It's always that kind of stress, you know. That's why people don't understand. Once you do not have freedom, you live under totalitarian government. How much we appreciate freedom. The Western people might not have the experience. We're getting there, though. 
We'll come to that in just a moment. <laughs> just before we go into what's happening, what was your initial um, your initial impression of America? So this was late 80s, was it? 1988. Actually, this next week, 1988, May 11th, um, it would be my anniversary. When I first came over, I was super happy. But how I started in this country was amazing. Look, I'm here to be interviewed by you. When I first left China, I was allowed 100 US dollars and to, in my pocket. I had to borrow that money. I didn't have money. My parents were very poor. And I got my friend to you know, say $10 here, $10 here. I'm going to become rich. I'm going to go to a free country. I'll pay you back with interest. <laughs> So I got $100, I couldn't speak English. I had to borrow money from my American sponsor, a professor, to be my um, sponsor to sign all the financial papers and uh, to offer free room and board in his house. And I owe him 1,200 US dollars for the, all the fees and air tickets and you know, graduation, I mean like graduate school, application fee, TOEFL fee. I didn't care, just put on it tap and I'll pay back. And so I started in America in the hall. It was like a totally negative. I was about 24 years old. I didn't care. I just said, uh, I have a big dream. I will make it. I believed I'm smart. I can learn everything very fast. And I will work my butt off. And uh, I will be free and stay in America. <laughs> That's my goal. <laughs> of course, I did not know. I am so blessed. I'm so blessed in America. The first night I show up, you know, to lock on the door, my sponsor picked me up at the airport and drive me uh, to uh, my dean's house to see your school. A dean is waiting for you, a whole family is waiting for you, say hello. And I just look at Austin, how come, where are you people? No people on the street. He said, this, we're not China. We don't have people just walking around riding bicycles on the streets. I just saw a car once a while, you know, driving bikes like nobody there. And then I lock on the door and uh, John's mother, you know, opened the door to say, welcome to Austin, Texas. Give me one red rose from her garden. Oh, I feel like uh, people were so wonderful, warm, and she just gave me this uh, natural earth mother feeling. I did not know she would become my mother-in-law, and then I met her, John, behind her back to say, that's my oldest John, you know? And I even told John later, like, you were tall, you got dark blue eyes, and I, I just came over from one been in Chinese country, I, I said, you look a little bit alien to me. <laughs> <laughs> and the people always think, oh, that's such a romantic story. And it, it was not love at first. I just said, you look alien to me. And my English wasn't good enough. And he, he tried to teach me English and gave me a tour next day on campus. And, and uh, so we started to become friends and we started to date. And I had to struggle to pay bills and to go through graduate school first. And, uh, but my impression of Texas people were so wonderful. Howdy, howdy. They know I'm, I was really poor. Do you need anything? Like uh, I worked as a research assistant. God was so good. I met my future husband first night. And uh, my dean said, uh, I got you a job called a research assistantship. I said, I don't know what to do. I couldn't speak English. Oh, no, just check numbers. I'm a scientist. You check my numbers. 
And so that way I get to pay in-state tuition. And uh, so I get a little bit salary. I don't have to worry about paying for food and you know necessary basic needs. Oh, I just feel like a, a, a so relieved. Like, a, oh, this is my promised land. I come here first night. Like, a, I have a job offers. Like, oh, thank God. It's like, <laughs> otherwise, I don't know how I'm going to pay for everything, you know. So that's how I went through graduate school for three years, got my master's. At the same time, dating my husband, and we got married in 1990. So May 26 will be our anniversary. So this trip is part of celebrating our anniversary. You know, it's you know, but I met him as long as uh, you know. Actually, I am in the U.S. Yeah. So that's lovely, and you're not the first person to describe Texas and Texans to me <laughs> in that way. Um, <laughs> I, I've never been myself, but hopefully one day. Um, at some point, however, you got the impression that some of what you had left was coming, was coming to America. What was the first inkling that you had that, that socialism was coming to America? Well, you know, when you're indoctrinated, lifetime, some people never wake up. Or some people will take also lifetime to get rid of it, to wake up. I was not political for 20 years. First 20 years in America, I was uh, getting my degree, getting married, and uh, have children. We have three wonderful children born in America, and uh, getting a mortgage, getting a job, and uh, I wasn't political. And I become U.S. citizen 1995, and before that, and I think 1996, and then we were sent to Hong Kong as expats, working in Hong Kong for two years. It was still under British rule. And then we saw 1997 becoming part of China. So I was still not political, just oh, work, work, make money, pay bills, pay off debts. You know, in Hong Kong, we pay off. John and I both work full time. We pay off all his student loan debt. <laughs> Whatever other personal debts we had, we used those two years. And then come back. And uh, I got a job, and, uh, and we had a third child, a daughter. I was laid off year of 2000. So when you get laid off, what do you do? You have more time on your hands, right? And then I start to look for job. I start to get into internet and learn how to do internet. I start to read lots of stuff. But I was still not political, but I thought, hey, I'm U.S. citizen now. Maybe it's time for me to learn how democracy works at the grassroots level. So I got involved with my neighborhood after we bought a house, HOA, Homeowner Association. Grassroots, you know, volunteer organization you serve, and I got elected as a board member. And uh, that was an interesting experience. And uh, because they, I think I did not like it because they keep raising our dues, so I did not like it. I said, well, what's going on? I should go and then serve, become part of it. And then my children become school age, and I did not like what the public school was telling us. My son, seven years old, was being too much a boy talking about building a bomb, blow up universe. It's fantasy play as a seven years old. And we got a call into principal's office to say, 
you kid, sit this. It's like, he's just a little boy. So I took them out, put them in charter school. So I got, okay, now in charter school, I can serve as board member. I can be in charge as parent. Oh, I, I did not like, uh, you know, public school so well. So I did become chairwoman of charter school board. And the one principal did not do a good job. After board decision, they, they said, Lily, call her and fire her. So I call her and fire the principal under my watch. <laughs> I feel so empowered. This is America. Parents have rights. We have a control of our kids' education to some degree. And we can hire a new principal. And new principal is going to hire other teachers who might not be unionized teachers. So my kids did very well in charter school. Of course, it's only up to eighth grade. Then later they had to go to public school, but they had a good foundation. And, uh, and um, so then 2008 came. You know what happened in 2008. You know, housing bubble, credit crisis, capitalism failed, we have to build other banks. And uh, also what I did, another thing to wake up is that uh, I want to know how government works. So when I had time, got a lay off, I started my own company. My, my own company wasn't profitable for many years to be consultant. So I started to go to become an intern at the state capital in Colorado, in Denver. So I go to the state capital once a month to um, follow up with legislative sessions and so lots of lobbyists there. First time I went there, it's like, a, John, there are lots of lobbyists there. None of them represent us, taxpayers. <laughs> they all were rent sinkers and have lunch, have dinner with all the legislators. And so I learned English that way. I also learned say how the state government works. And I was a little bit depressed yeah. about that. How it works is not how it should work. And you mentioned earlier, you mentioned Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong after the Second World War was extremely poor. It had been ruled by the uh, Empire of Japan very brutally and uh, was in a very bad way. And the British Empire itself was in a very bad way, so it couldn't really do much to help. And uh, the person they put in to administer it was a Scottish man called Cowperthwaite. Right? And Cowperthwaite, when he had all these people coming rent-seeking or looking for bailouts, he would say no. Oh, good for him. Right. Came, Our politicians are supposed he, to say they represent the people, not he, a special interest. Yeah, he kept, he kept the, the government small and he, he says, you want to do something, you go and do it, but don't look for a handout and look at Hong Kong, look how it developed. Right? Yeah. To, to, to be much more wealthy than Britain per head of population. We live in Hong Kong, we loved Hong Kong. It's so sad to see what happened. And the flat income tax, we file taxes by using a, a postcard, sending in, no CPA needed, and also no sales tax. So whatever you go shopping, you just pay the cost, and people, entrepreneurs everywhere doing their own thing, very bustling, busy, wealthy city, extremely hardworking Chinese. You know, no matter where Chinese are, the only difference is that depends on the system. So you say Hong Kong Chinese prosper so well, say first world country until, you know, took, it, uh, took over now. You look at Taiwan, Singapore, you look at Taiwan, democracy, Chinese and, 
And one of the four dragons that time, aging economical dragons were, you know, Taiwan, Hong Kong, you know, Singapore and South Korea. And, uh, but the mainland China, why did we like have to eat red meat, you know, because communist system and the communism foreign ideology from Karl Marx, you know, communist manifesto, we were required to read it and to recite it. I even did not understand sometimes what he meant, but we're supposed to memorize it and to demonize capitalism, demonize rich people and, and, uh, and hate them. But we were very poor, hungry ourselves. So that did not help us at all. And so, so what you said, I mean, like uh, I was always interested in Western culture. You know why? Because uh, they were more wealthy. You had lots of, uh, you know, industrial revolution and uh, cultural renaissance. I mean, I, I become more fascinated, you know, and into the West. But uh, how did I wake up is to say, I love America, American spirit, you know, free market and free enterprise. I become entrepreneur after I get layoff year of 2000. And I had more time to study, to get my kids into charter school also. To, to start my own business. I was not profitable I, you know, until 2008. The housing bubble actually gave me idea I should invest in real estate. That was best time. So I convinced my husband uh, to say, let's get jump into it. Even though there were lots of risks involved, we had nothing, we just only had one single family home, one mortgage. But I said, we don't want to miss the boat. This is the best time. Uh, and I studied all the books and listened to all the radio shows on real estate. Let's do it. Let's do it. So I took all the risk ourselves. If we failed, we would lose the only house we had. Our kids would be going somewhere else to live, you know, a little tiny house. But I feel like uh, it's personal responsibility to educate yourself about the financial situations, money management, and to take a risk to, ma to, to, to invest. And then if you get a big return, you're happy. If you lose, that's terrible. <laughs> you bear the consequences, you're right? You bear the consequences, but you're wiser. Yeah, you're yeah. wiser. You, you, that's why I did not become successful through past eight years from 2000 to 2008, because uh, I, I just wasn't profitable in my consulting business project here, there. And uh, until I do real estate, you buy low and you fix up and you rent it out. And that gave us cash flow. And then you go to use other people's money, talk to bank. Here, I'm going to use this property as a collateral and uh, take money, cash back from this house and go buy another one. So we did that for, uh, I think, from 2008 until about uh, like 2013. And uh, that's what I was focused on the business side of growing money, creating a, you know, um, wealth and networks for ourselves and I'm three children too because I wasn't profitable right now my husband was bad feeling one guy working for a family of five what if something happened to him then we had no financial security so and so after all that and, and when I was doing this business and also same time I had a time to think about the politics and watch news and all that stuff and I found out the country is changing they, they, how could you demonize capitalism failed? Then we had to bail the banks with taxpayers' money. And how did we, how did the U.S. government that time expanded the federal power, the Patriot Act, no child left behind in education? 
all that stuff, I said, uh, what's going on? What's going on? I, 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 I become a Republican member, party member, which is because I like the platform, small limited government. But uh, what they were doing, I, I just, I was very worried. Then it got worse and worse under Obama and also Colorado state government 2013 wanted to have gun control. What really scared me, got me really jump out of sofa, going to Capitol first time, testified as a citizen, new citizen. It was 2013, the gun control bills. They, so I had to stand in long line and finally use my straight smart sense to go inside with a, a, a like a Second Amendment rights leader to say, can I go in with you since you are the expert witness? You don't have to stay in long night because I will never get my voice to be heard if I'm going to stay in long line until midnight. So I went in there with him and I testified for the first time and I wrote my article, Guns Against Tyranny, published by National Review Online, tell my stories with my broken English that time still, Guns Against Tyranny, 2013. After that, there's no turning back. They passed the gun control bills on the party line. I realized my liberty, my Second Amendment rights, and uh, I'm not safe. There's uh, something going on in America. It starts sounds more and more like what I heard in China. I better, I better get involved if I don't want this country I love to become the old country I left. So I basically become accidental citizen activist by getting involved. And even later, I got recruited by Libertarian Party to run for them um, because uh, I, I, could, I, I could not and, uh, win anything. You know, you know, as running as a Republican Party member, I was upset with them. I feel like they left me. So I run for Libertarian Party and that was not effective. And later I went back to Republican Party and speak around the country. I went to schools for five years now, middle school, high school, and colleges to teach our kids about the horrors of communism. But look at today's kids. They really need desperate to hear my stories. That's why I'm doing interviews, talks everywhere. And, uh, and, and uh, I ran for U.S. House last year in New Hampshire for, um, as a Republican. And I did not win, but that's okay. Because uh, it's about my message, my cause. It's about the Save America. It's not about me winning a seat, right? But I was the first uh, China-born Republican candidate, a woman actually running for U.S. Congress. And um, I'm hoping that uh, people will start to really listen to me, what I've been saying, and especially last three years, you know what happened. Last three years, the world has gone crazy. <laughs> it has. Um, and and I, th I think that, that brings us a little bit about the, the city you're in just now, because this is Edinburgh, the home of the Scottish government. And they are very crazy uh, in that what we're seeing, what, what, what I've been seeing in Scotland, in Britain, Scotland's a little bit worse, but in Britain generally, is the same problem that you've been seeing. There's this, it's totalitarian. This totalitarian mindset starts to permeate everything. It's very obvious when it comes to 
education and children. Uh, the state in Scotland was trying to put a state-appointed guardian or overseer for every child to sit essentially above the parents and the way the legislation was written is whenever this person, this state official, had a gut feel, no evidence required, that something wasn't quite right, she, he or she would then um, use all the avenues, all the areas of the state to collate information on the family and decide what to do to, in, to um, intervene in the child's life to save them from a possible risk of future harm, it's all imagined, to something called well-being, which isn't defined. So it was just, it was putting state officials in charge of families. Now, fortunately, uh, it was passed by the Scottish courts to their everlasting shame, but it went down to the Supreme Court in London, who squashed it. And when they, when they, they, they struck it down, they said the first thing a totalitarian state does is try to get at the children to separate them from the diverse, subversive influence of their families. Right? So the Supreme Court saw what this was. So we're seeing creeping totalitarian ideology coming in to Britain, to Scotland, which is a similar and very closely entwined with America history of liberty and individual responsibility and individual freedom. Um, and we're seeing this come in and there is an element of it which is Marxist, there's an element of it which is communist, there's an element of it which is neo-Marxist, there's an element which is Maoist. But the strange thing is it's not coming in from Russia, it's not coming in from China as far as I can see, it's homegrown. The ideas have come in, they've taken root, and the West, Scotland, Britain, and the United States, we are, we are enslaving ourselves. Is, is that how you see it? Well, that's why it's terrifying. And to immigrate like me and some other ones, I have a YouTube channel, Lady Tom Williams, Every week we have an immigrate talk show and I, I invite other immigrants to come on my show to tell their stories and share their worries. I notice it's not just America anymore, it's, it's the whole Western democracy countries uh, allowing this kind of ideology that I saw in China and suffered horrible consequences of this kind of ideology totalitarianism where government has a final saying in everything, individuals, parents have no rights, and not just you kids belong to the government, even sometimes you belong to the government. You saw what happened during the COVID. You don't belong yourself. You're not able to make full wise choices. You have to. So I'm so worried about it. Say we are trying to pass parental rights bill now in the state of New Hampshire. Why? Why do I have to come to America to go to state house to testify to support parental rights? Is that not our natural right as individuals? 
God gave us that right. Our rights are not from the government. So why could the government take away? We have to go persuade our state legislators to pass the bill that when our kids go to schools, public schools, and the parental rights do not stop. They are hired by us to teach our children, but now they have a totally different agenda and a different ideology to push, and they see parents as a threat to children. So whenever you don't agree with them, they think, uh, parents, you can be abusive if we tell you the truth. Therefore, we have to keep secrets away from you. It's like, are you kidding me? So you ask my children to trust teachers, counselors, whoever in school. They can be total strangers. Might not remember everything about my child. And uh, then you tell my child that uh, your parents might be bad guys, abuse, abuse you if you don't tell them the truth. That's what the Mao did during the Mao's Cultural Revolution. Turn the kids against the parents. Do not trust your parents. Every day we're saying, um, Sure, my mom is more dear than my parents. So I, 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 don't, I don't know what's going on. I think this kind of Marxism, cultural neo-Marxism, is uh, really deeply infiltrated into the West. The name person scheme that we, I was describing there, where the, the state-appointed overseer was attempted to be put in charge of families, um, there was a big campaign which I was privileged to watch, uh, to fight this. And the beauty of the campaign is they were very, very thorough and they got lots of information because, because the state was mobilising basically the whole state to do this thing, they had to communicate what they were wanting them to do. And there's still enough freedom that we've got that communication and we could publicise what it was. So this had several quite funny examples. One was we got the minutes where the officials said they would organise all of this scheme, they would set it all running, they would get it embedded in, in the practice of the professional teachers. And once it was all established, then they'd tell the parents. Up until then it was to be secret from the parents and we've got the minutes that, where that was discussed. One of the other things uh, they had was in um, little rural schools in, uh, in, in, in the Scottish countryside um, where they've got kids in farms that are a long way out and they've got to transport them into the school, they use taxis, right? So, the, so the, the, the local authority will hire taxis to do these runs. They had a briefing session for the taxi drivers mm -hmm. to tell the taxi drivers to listen to what the children were saying in the taxi and report back to the state-appointed named person about what they said. And the beauty was that one of the taxi drivers recorded this conversation and, and, and the, the campaign against named person got hold of this and publicised it. So, but the, the idea of this spying, people were seeing this as Stasi. This mm -hmm. is uh, this there was a there was a huge attempt to introduce this into Scotland. And most of the mainstream parties either supported it or 
were tacitly kind of going along with it. It was the people that, that, that fought it. It wasn't the political system. The political system was weak. It was the people, the parents that said, no, we're not having this. Good, good. That needs to be that way. Needs to, parents are waking up in the U.S. too. Yes. Yeah. I've, I've seen examples of that as I'm standing up in school boards and, yes. and, and, and pushing back and, and doing so very effectively. I feel like this is Western culture revolution because for some reason that uh, the, the communist-minded people Marxist people, they see the Western culture, traditional values of free market, individual rights, liberty, parental rights are in the way of achieving their agendas, socialism, communism, state control, totalitarianism. So they want to create um, constantly a new identity politics, new oppressed group to destroy Western civilization institutions. They have destroyed lots of Western institutions in, in, in America. Traditional American, they are infiltrated into schools, colleges, right? You know, even, even like our um, judicial system and federal agencies and, and churches too. So now what is last one left? It's nuclear families and the parents love their children like uh, they know that they will fight for their children mom bears and dad bears once they wake up realize and they will fight back and uh, long stop so this is the really like a cultural war now but the thing is so lots of people either don't know the truth ignorant and or they bought into social media and the government propaganda and to to even believe their rhetorics because they don't know the truth. Oh, critical race theory is not taught in schools. Transgender, no, it's not pushing schools. They're still hidden in the sand. Um, but also some people who know the truth, but they're afraid to speak up. They're afraid to be called racist, transphobic person, and, uh, and also lose their jobs, lose their careers, get canceled. So, People have to pay the bills, they're, you know, worry about their economical means. And so there are lots of factors involved, but I'm always telling people, I'm speaking up as immigrant, because I know I see the writing on the wall, if I don't speak up, if immigrants like me don't speak up, who will? We feel obligated now to say, we have seen it before, come on, wake up people. It's like your neighbor's house is on fire, they don't know it, we have to tell them that. So I, but there are lots of immigrants also afraid of speak up too because they have families and business in their own home country. They're afraid of retaliations. I have been, re, you know, threatened since 2019 from the um, pro China's um, government and CCP people to ask me to shut up, stop speaking out, or you're not going to come back to China anymore. I had to cancel my trip 2019. So I'm not going to China by myself. I might disappear. <laughs> and, uh, and, but I want to be effective here to tell my stories. I'm not going to be silenced. Look, I cannot say what I wanted in China for 24 years. So you want me to come to America and uh, know the truth and say the writing on the wall and say nothing? I cannot live with myself. 
And I have three children in America, and they're going to have their children. And uh, so everybody has to do their part, right? We cannot be free because this is our true enemy now. It's this uh, cultural Marxism, American cultural revolution, Western cultural revolution. If you think things will get better by keep your head down, you need to study more history about what happened. Younger Mao's cultural revolution, it will get worse. And uh, Cambodia, cultural genocide, communists took over overnight and marched into your house take your children away, put them in neighbor camps, and uh, confiscate all your private properties, wealth you accumulated. It doesn't matter how rich, how comfortable you are, you are going to lose everything. So I hope people you know, need to know the true enemy we are fighting against today and speak up now. Lily, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to you today. Thank you very much for that. Um, uh, I would um, um, I would commend anyone who's uh, been inspired by what you said to look at your work in America and uh, and 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 visit your website. Uh, could you just remind us what your website is? It's just my whole name and Lily Tang Williams and uh, um, LilyTangWilliams.com. So my, uh, lots of my videos, my social media, my daily Twitter feed is on there on the homepage. And uh, um, I know you know about Twitter files, you know that there is a censorship going on in the world. But you know, um, you can always go to my website and uh, find me. And uh, if I'm not going to allow myself to be silenced and canceled, and I will never be canceled. So just, you know, even though we have a Second Amendment right in the U.S., not like the U.K., but I still prefer we use our mind, we use our speeches, we use our ideas to educate and persuade people and uh, come out to fight for liberty now before we have to really turn to our Second Amendment. Of course, cannot compromise on that either. That, that's something that I feel absolutely passionate about. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. That's our last resort. Yeah. yeah. Well, Lily, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Till next time, thank you. Well, thank you for having me and listening to me. Let's keep in touch on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Yeah. Thank you, David.